Welcome to Potadelphia. My name is Dave Diorio. You can find me on Twitter at fat underscore lobster. And I am joined by two guys who know that pitchers are best left pitching and sometimes playing left field. What's up, Chuck and Gene? Uh, hey, Dave. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Siders. You can find me on Twitter at Chuck Siders. You can find the show at Potadelphia. And honestly, sometimes a pitcher is better suited for uh, for left field than on the mound. So, I mean, kudos to Gabe there. And this is Gene Zelak. You can find me at Producer Gene on Twitter. And I think that this was all Kapler's way of saying that he should have unlimited pitchers in his bullpen. He should mm. just be able to call on any pitcher at any time anywhere in the world. He should just be able to <laughs> call him out. Maybe just call somebody from the stands. Now, that would have been interesting if he had just reached into, like, the fourth row and found some fat guy. And be like, you want to toss? <laughs> Isn't that, like, a thing in professional wrestling, like, that, like he can just... Like somebody can just call out like a championship challenge. Oh my God! It's Billy stuff. Wagner's walk-up music. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you guys are gonna have to scooch over on the virtual couch here uh, because we have a guest today. All right. Woo! We are yes. <laughs> the excitement is palpable. We are lucky enough to have with us Matt Pfeiffer, who is a star of the upcoming production of Tommy and Me. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me, guys. All right, so uh, Tommy and me, it's 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 premiering Friday, right? We opened Friday. We premiered four years ago. This is the fourth <laughs> fourth go round of the show. Um, so yeah, we start. We our first audience is Friday night. Very exciting. We Already are, sold out, yeah. right? Opening night is it sold is, out. Yeah, opening night sold out, and the show typically sells out. Um, so yeah, I would uh, if you if you're thinking of coming, if you're a Ray Didinger fan, you have to see the show. And most of the people that come are, you know, they're back for their third or fourth time. <laughs> um, you know, people come back and they bring their dads or they bring their brothers and they bring their their family. Um, and so it's become a you know, it, it, we sort of it, the show lines up with Eagles training camp, so. You know, there's birds on the brain, and so it's a good way to, you know, there's only one game a week. So it's a great way that I think people have found to get hyped for the season by by coming and reminiscing about Tommy McDonald through Ray Dittinger's eyes. And, Fife, you mentioned that this has been going on for four years now. How is it to go back and play the same character year after year? I imagine this is the longest relationship you've had with any given role with any given part you know throughout your entire yeah. acting career yeah i've never done anything like it period um you know we we first did a reading of the play um in 2015 and you know we sort of did the reading at theater exile which who produces the show and where i've worked um as an actor and a director um for 15 years um you know, we had got to know Ray. We produced a play called The Philly Fan um, that ran, had a similar run, ran for off and on for about 10 years. And that was a, a much more cynical play <laughs> written by Bruce, Philadelphia playwright named Bruce Graham that was about a beleaguered Philadelphia sports fan in his 70s sitting at a bar the night before the 2005 Super Bowl. And, uh, and so over the course of that play's life, we had many, many nights where you know, uh, different 
sports icons in Philadelphia would come. We did this night of champions, you know, where, you know, we had Harry Callis and we had Chuck Ben Derrick and Dave Schultz. Um, it's a pretty amazing event. And so through that, we met Ray. And so a couple of years later, Ray sent us this play and we read it and, you know, had the bones of a, of a, of an okay play, but it was a great story. And it didn't seem like something we would ultimately produce, but it's like, well, why don't we do a reading? Like, let's just, you know, book a night and we'll do a reading and Ray can hear the play and an audience can come to play. Well, the thing sold out. <laughs> and, and so we did the reading in May of 2015 and to a 250 people. And the, the man in the front row um, was, the, was the special guest of honor. And that was number 25 himself, Tommy McDonald. He came with his family to the reading. And uh, towards the end of the show, um, when Tommy's going into the Hall of Fame, um, the actor playing Tommy is it does Tommy's Hall of Fame presentation, which we should probably get into. Um, he does it in the show, and at the end of it, he yells, Thank you, Canton, I love it. And it gets applause, and Tommy McDonald, who was 80 at the time, in the front row, jumped up and started pounding his fists in the air and pointing at us on stage pointing to the audience and then he ran to the stage and started pounding on the stage <laughs> and the roof I, I mean the roof came off the place i mean i never <laughs> experienced anything like that in my life i mean to see this 80 year old man in a suit running at the stage and uh and i felt bad because i still had a page and a half of dialogue left. <laughs> <laughs> and um i i just know in that moment there was suddenly we all realized something, there was something special there. And, you know, we did a talk back afterward and, you know, Ray, I'd only got to know a little bit, you know, cause we just did like two or three days of rehearsal for the reading. Um, you know, Ray comes down the center aisle um, and he's just beat red with tears in his eyes. And that was sort of the last piece of it for me of, you know, this, what, you know, this writer who I had grown up reading and obviously uh, just like you guys had watched on Post Game Live for all those years, you know, I had a, a, a real affinity for Ray. Um, but in those moments, you know, between Tommy being Tommy and then Ray being Ray, it just felt like, well, this is something this might be something special. And so a year later, we produced it. And, you know, when we produced it the first time, I had no idea what I was getting into. My son had just been born. And um, I had come off like being in the hospital with my son and directing a play. And I kind of came into the process, you know, pretty bleary eyed, <laughs> um, you know, and and by the time we got in front of an audience, I, you know, I'm on stage, um, you know, for the duration of the play. It's about 75 minutes. And I basically narrate the entire show. So I have the bulk of the text in the play. And I just kind of, you know, I guess like you know, like a good Westbrook run, I just sort of put my head down and did it, you know? <laughs> um, and, and it wasn't really until we were in front of an audience, I had any concept of what I was really doing. And on opening night, you know, we do a talk back every night with a different guest on opening night. Um, this big guy in an Eagles jersey in the back row, he stands up, he's the first question, he stands up and he says, this is a love story. And I just thought, man, if if we get this guy to say this is a love story, we're doing something right. And and so that really has been 
parted to my long answer to your question, Chuck. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess it's appropriate I play a guy who monologues in the show. Um, uh, you know, that my love for Ray, um, you know, we've become friends and he is just as uh, estimable a human being as I've ever encountered. I mean, all of the things that you have known to love about him as fans, you know, all of those things are true in real life. You know, he has opened up his home to me and uh, me and my wife and son have gone and um, had dinner with, you know, Ray and his wife many times. He's become uh, a very good friend. He comes to everything I do. Uh, he's always the first person to email me if I get a good review. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so those, the emotional components that have gone into making the show are what makes it so rich to do every year um, and to keep coming back to it because it's Ray's story about his relationship with Tommy McDonald, but it really you know, we become a part of that story. And I feel like I become a part of that story. And, and my responsibility of, you know, bringing truth to Ray's story every night is a, is a responsibility I take seriously. And every year I do it, that deepens and deepens. And of course, every year there's been a new wrinkle to how the story deepens. You know, the, the, the second year we did it, it was just the concept that we were going to do it again at all, mm. considering the first version was really, like I said, kind of a shotgun blast. Um, you know, and then last year we did it in media um, after the Eagles had finally won the Super Bowl and that every night, you know, we were at a much bigger theater in media. We had about 400 people a night and it was just this celebration of all of the things that people were feeling, the joy that people were feeling. And I'm sure you guys have all seen that footage of Ray, you know, cr crying on air after hugging his son, celebrating the Eagles winning, um, you know, that that was, I think, represented a feeling that people all over the country felt that were Eagles fans. And, and that was kind of how it felt to do the show last year. It was sort of like people came wanting to recount how much it means to be a fan of something. Um, and now this year we're doing the show, um, you know, rather melancholy because Tommy passed in September. And uh, it's really changed the show because we're now really truly doing it in his memory. And so every year there's a different element that I think has, has changed my relationship to the show. Um, so that's a really long way to answer the question, but I thought I would give you some context of sort of the emotional life behind the show because the plot points of the show are fairly boilerplate. You know, it's really, you know, when Ray was a kid, he went to Eagles training camp with his family in Hershey every summer. He got to know Tommy McDonald. Tommy McDonald uh, treated him like a prince. Um, and then years later, when Ray became a sports writer, he had a chance to reconnect with Tommy in a professional capacity. And then when Ray was appointed to the uh, Hall of Fame's board of selectors, he petitioned to get Tommy in the Hall of Fame, which he ultimately, ultimately succeeded in doing in 1998. And Tommy McDonald's acceptance speech to the Hall of Fame is sort of considered to be one of the great uh, NFL Hall of Fame acceptance speeches of all time because he was this clown uh, character. You know, he's a really, really funny guy and a cut up. And he did not do something serious. He did something rather uh, extraordinarily funny and silly and celebratory. And that was uh, really unique. And so the tension of the play really is centered around that Hall of Fame acceptance speech and Ray's fear that Tommy will embarrass himself. Um, and Ray, of course, wanted him desperately not to do that. Uh, and so that really is what the play is about. And, you know, uh, on a deeper level for me, the play is really about these two men that, um, 
are not don't want the world to see how they really feel. You know, I think when Ray cried on TV, I think the reason that was so meaningful to people is because part of what makes him so great is how dispassionate he is. You know, he's a straight shooter. He tells you like it is. He's not a rah-rah WIP guy. Um, you know, he he is a smart, learned, uh, reasoned man. And I think when people saw him cry, uh, that's a side of Ray Dittinger that I've gotten to know and I've gotten to inhabit. And and it wasn't shocking to me at all to see him cry. But I do think that it was revelatory to people who who care about him and have loved him. And I think that the play gets to that. The play gets to how men don't necessarily want the world to see how emotional they might be about something. And that is something that Tommy and Ray had in common. And that's really what makes the, the experience of the play, I think, pretty, pretty moving. I think that's interesting yeah. because there are very few people that you would say in Philadelphia sports that are kind of like universally beloved. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Harry Callis would be up, up yeah. there in that, that same list. Um, so is it, is it interesting to kind of be, is, is there any Ray isms that like be now being able to get to know him <laughs> that you try to incorporate? I don't know if it's a, a physical thing or a vocal thing or just, are you just trying to, to do the, you know, do you and have that kind of just carry over as, as, as Ray? Yeah, it's a great question to you because, because the, the first year I did it, you know, I, I got to emphasize enough that like we really rehearsed it in like two weeks and I had a six week old at home. So I really don't know how I got through it. I just kind of went for it and I wasn't ever trying to do any kind of impersonation of Ray. I was really just trying to play, you know, what was on the page, just play the truth of what was happening on the page. But invariably, people, including his children, felt like I, you, you were him. I mean, when he, when, when, the, when his children were like, "Oh my God, you just like my dad," <laughs> I thought, "Well, I wasn't really trying to do that. I just think it's written in his voice." But then, as time has gone on, you know, I, I, sp I've spent enough time with him that there are little little small mannerisms and, uh, you know, he talks with his hands a lot. Um, and he has a few physical tics, um, that I have sort of slowly incorporated. And the highlight of my performance was last year. One of, you know, we have a guest speaker every night and we had some really amazing guests like Dick Vermeil and Jaws and, uh, Vince Papali. And, um, um, we have, I'm, I'm my, my, I'm most excited because this year Jason Stark is coming which is like the most nerd I'm going to be ever. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, when I saw that on the list, I definitely wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but we had Seth Joyner last year and um, somebody asked that question in the audience about, you know, uh, um, uh, what are the things I do to sort of mimic race behavior? And again, I kind of always give a sort of pat answer of like, I'm not really trying to do that. And Seth Joyner was like, oh, you got a head scratch you got his head scratch down and I totally do his, he has a, a head scratch that he does and I totally do it. And it was the thrill of my life that Seth Joyner, who I loved was, was excited by something I did as an actor. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty surreal. And I was like, I can't believe you noticed that. That's a, I'm doing that on purpose. Um, and then, and then, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm saying anything out of school. But his afterward, Ray's wife was like, "Well, you know why he does that? Because he has psoriasis." 
<laughs> Matt, I suddenly felt tremendously guilty about scratching my head. <laughs> Matt, so like you know, in Philadelphia, you could slap an Eagles sticker on a lunchbox or whatever, and, and people <laughs> will buy it. Um, but you know, this seems like a much more you know authentic, like homegrown, seeded, watered, loved uh, type of product. How critical, like? You know, we go back, so I can definitely speak to your credentials as a Philadelphia fan, uh, of, of course. How critical is it that it's someone of your resume um, doing this as, as opposed to just outsourcing this to some sort of national uh, actor? I mean, I, I think that it plays a huge role. Uh, I would say, quite honestly, that more of that is is uh, goes to my co-actor. You know, there's four actors in the play. There's a young version of me. And then there's a young version of Tommy McDonald. But the actor who plays Tommy McDonald, Tom Teddy, who is a lifelong Philadelphia actor, you know, Tom was just like Ray. So Ray's family had, were season ticket holders his whole life. And they were at the 1960 championship, which was played at Franklin Field in section double E. Um, the you know, fun that was, fact the, I heard know, about the, that game today is that it was played on a Monday and it was blacked out yes. on television. So That's exactly if you weren't right. at the game, exactly. you didn't see it. That's right. That's exactly right. And and so so Ray was their family. Well, two sections over, Tom Teddy was there with his family, and his family were also season ticket holders. So so Tom Teddy, who plays McDonald, he watched every game he ever played in person um, for the Eagles. And so, you know, between the two of us, we were both raised in sports families. We have a deep deep knowledge of of what sports has meant to a city like Philadelphia. Um, and then the director is also a lifelong Philadelphia sportsman. And so really, you know, the three of us have worked on the project from the beginning. Um, later, the young Ray character was added. Um, and then later, even later than that, the young Tommy character was added. He's been played by two different actors. And the current actor, Frank Nardi, is also a huge Eagles fan. And the guy who plays, the kid who plays young Ray um, is the grandson of the director and is also been raised in a sports family. So it's not just me. Everybody involved with the show has a very, very specific relationship with what it means to to be an Eagles fan, but also to to be a, a Philadelphia sports fan. You know, we've all been the butt of. Can I curse on the podcast? Is that okay? Yes, you can. Okay, all right. I mean, I just was going to say that you know we've all been the butt of these fucking Santa Claus jokes for a thousand years, <laughs> and um, you know we know that that is not who we are. You know that is we. You know, it was great to see these retirement speeches this season from, you know, Utley, Howard and Rollins, you know, and every one of those guys touched on what we all know to be true, which is that they they cheer you as much as they boo you. And it, the booing actually is odd. It is as odd as it is convinced people of this. The, the booing really does come from a a place of love. It is we know you're capable of more and we want to let you know it. We're going to hold you to account. Now, that, of course, there are assholes, you know, but there are assholes in every fan base. And any fan base that tries to act like they don't have assholes is just lying to themselves. And so the fact that, you know, we have been pilloried by this national perception of we're somehow worse than Boston fans or New York fans is horseshit. And there is, I will say, the the misunderstood nature of who we are is I think something that's a huge part of this play because there is an unbridled enthusiasm and optimism about 
the love of, in this case, the Eagles that I think people connect to. And so I, I do think um, the fact that we all have a relationship to that, um, you know, there's a moment in the show when I referenced Joe Kuharik. Now, I didn't need to be told. I didn't need a dramaturg to tell me, <laughs> one, who Joe Kuharik was, or two, that he was the most reviled coach in the history of the Philadelphia Eagles. So when I, in performance, say his name and the audience audibly boos, it was not <laughs> – it was not a shock to me. <laughs> um, so that is the kind of stuff that I think, um, you know, we bring to bear uh, in this show. One of the things that uh, I, I didn't know a lot because I, I I'm, I'm wasn't around in 1960, but the two things my father kind of passed down to me was, was Tommy McDonald and Chuck Bednarik. And I really don't think that there's two more opposite personalities that you could have <laughs> to define an era of a, of a, of a, of a team. Um, did you ever get to meet Chuck Bagnarik? Uh, do, do you have any idea of, is, is he quite as uh, monstrous as, as people will say? And did Tommy ever, when you, when you ran across him, had, did he have any other uh, insight as to what it was like to, to be on a team with, with, with a guy that was, you know, that mythic, you know, to a certain degree? I, yeah. I mean, I did get to meet Chuck multiple times. You no, know, I don't, I assume you guys know this or maybe you don't, you know, he lived in Coopersburg. So I, when I was first dating my wife, we were at the Coopersburg diner and we're sitting there and she says, my God, look at that guy's hands. And I said, honey, do you know who that is? She goes, no. I said, that's Chuck Benderick. He played both ways. His hands are fucked up because of football. <laughs> and so I had occasion to run into him at the coop, ironically, talking to the three of you. Um, <laughs> I served uh, him drinks at the lime port. Just so you guys know, you guys knew that, right? Um, But, uh, um, and then the only other experience I had with him was when we did this night of champions for Philly fan. And he was the, you know, we had all these, like I just said earlier, we had all these great people from, from Callis to, to Dickie Knowles and um, Schultz. The only person who, I don't want to besmirch Chuck Benderek. He he brought one of the two championships, (laughs) sorry, four championships that we have. Um, but he's the only guy that we had to send a car for him and he showed up in his hall of fame jacket. And, you know, I, I'm sure you guys remember, you know, when Laurie took over the team, you know, in those, during the early days of the Andy Reid era, there was a, you know, Chuck wrote a book and he insisted that the Eagles buy the book for the team. So all of my interactions with him where he was kind of a red ass, you know, he was kind of a pain in the ass. And I think by the time I got to meet Tommy, who was so generous and so sweet, I didn't want to bring the conversation down <laughs> by asking about Chuck. But, you know, um, like a lot of great athletes, you know, that that cantankerousness, um, you know, that all went someplace. I mean, he really was the 60 minute man. And um, I don't know. I, I My guess is that, you know, if you play the way he did, you might not have been the nicest guy in real life. But uh <laughs> But uh, no, I never asked Tommy, you know, but by the time, you know, we got to know Tommy a little bit and, and his family uh, even more so, um, you know, the, the time we got to spend with him, we went out to his house in King of Prussia, um, had lunch with him. And at, at that point, his, his wife had Alzheimer's, um, you know, and he was really he was really still with it. But, you know, definitely needed some, you know, some extra attention. And um, they were so kind to open up their their 
house and their family to us, and they've been nothing but kind to us. Um, I just think I, I, you just, you felt this reverence around him because he was so funny and gregarious, even at eighty-two, um, and and I, I, it was it sort of felt inappropriate to want to ask him about his playing days. It just it felt nice just to be in his presence. I will say he did come back to see the show the first year we did it in performance and his children sat on either side of him, his son, Chris and his daughter, Tish, they sat on either side of him to restrain him so that he, so that he wouldn't jump up. And, uh, and, and Chris swears to God, he said, Oh my God, we had to, we had to hold on to him. He said, dad, you can't jump up. Um, so yeah, they, they, uh, they've been very supportive of the show. And, and when he passed, um, we went out uh, for the wake, um, I guess the viewing, um, and uh, I happened to get there early. And Chris came out to handle some business, and he saw me, and he was just couldn't believe that I had come to his father's viewing. And uh, he said, "You got to come in. You got to come in and see the family." And there was nobody there. The 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 the, the viewing had not been open yet, and so I I went in uh, with Chris, and the entire McDonald clan was there. And they all came over and they were just so the outpouring of, oh, my God, you, the, the guy who plays Ray, you came and all oh, we love the show. And it meant so much that you guys are doing our dad's story. And it was really surreal. I mean, it was really surreal because, you know, it was we're here for this solemn event, you know, that really was about celebrating Tommy's life. And the family was just so uh, could not have been. Uh, more appreciative and, and lovely about all of it and uh that you know that really gets to you you know you really uh, you know of all the roles i've played i've never felt like i had the responsibility of you know honoring somebody's life in the way that we do in this show and so uh yeah you know it gets to you but you mentioned before about the tommy mcdonald hall of fame speech and that that's really how I was introduced to Tommy McDonald. I heard the name. I saw old photos, but I mean, I didn't have any relationship to him as a fan until that moment. And my God, he, he became one of my all time favorite Eagles <laughs> on, on one you know afternoon. And you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, the highlight of the show towards the end, it's sort of the culmination, the climax of the show. How, how is it to be a part of recreating that? How does that feel, you know, as somebody who, like we all did, watched it, you know, with Tommy actually doing it, to see it recreated and see it connect with audiences on a, a nightly basis? Well, you know, it's mostly all on Tom, Teddy, the actor. You know, I, I sort of... I sort of have to stay really serious because, you know, my narration is Ray in that moment is Ray's state of mind, which is, which is fear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Ray is really afraid of everything that's happening. And so it's, it's actually tricky because I can't fully enjoy it as much as I do. I, what I will say, and I, it's not a spoiler at the end of the show, we play the video. The last thing that happens oh. in the show, the show is over. We actually play, um, you know, it's sort of a condensed version of it. It's probably a two-minute version of it. Um, and the more amazing thing about that is 
I think a lot of people who see the show, even people who might know about the acceptance speech, they don't realize how how true it really is. And so that's the bigger thing is when people watch that video and they see everything that just happened in the show, um, you know, they laugh in a way that they, they just like they can't believe that it actually happened. They can't believe that we recreated like that. We weren't exaggerating. I mean, one <laughs> of the things that I've come to know about about Ray is there's not a lot of dramatic license in the show. You know, with, it's amazing, you know, that we have this scene backstage in the Hall of Fame. It's sort of the emotional climax of the play. Um, and people ask every night, so Ray, was it really like that? Did you really, is that really what you said to him? And, you know, Ray literally just starts to recite dialogue from the play. He says, oh yeah, I, I said, you know, I told him. It's like, I, people are expecting him to go, well, I didn't say this, or well, it wasn't quite like that. No, it, so most of what happens in the show is quite literally exactly what happens. And so I think that's the more amazing thing is that you're watching this Hall of Fame acceptance speech play to laughs. And you, I find myself often wondering, I, I, I wonder if people know how accurate this actually is. This is actually what happened. Um, so it's more, I would say more of that. It's more fun to, um, you know, watch Tom recreate it every night. And, and Tom is a really, you know, he's a brilliant actor, um, but he's also a really gifted comedian. And so he, he always finds little ways to, to you know, catch the audience off guard, and so therefore catch me off guard. <laughs> so there is some level of spontaneity in what he does. I, I'm sold. I want to go. How do how do I get tickets? <laughs> well, if you go to www.theaterexile.org, that's theater R E. Um, you can <laughs> find information. The proper uh, way to spell it. The proper way to spell it. Yes. Our our our. As our BAs can attest, um, uh, and WIP is also a primary sponsor for the show, so I believe you can find information on their website. We perform at the Live Arts Theater, which is on Broad uh, some, uh, Race and Columbus Boulevard, um, and we are there Tuesday, Wednesday, and uh, then Friday through Sunday. Thursday is the only night we don't perform because uh, if you check your schedules, the Eagles have football games, <laughs> so we don't <laughs> perform on game night. Uh, and we have two shows Saturday, two shows Sunday. We run through, uh, I think it's the 28th, uh, whatever that whatever that last Sunday is in August. And uh, we have an amazing lineup of guests coming. And, uh, yeah, it's a great time. It's 75 minutes. If Even if I can't imagine if you're listening to this podcast that you don't like football, but um, if you have somebody in your life that says, oh, I don't want to see that, I'm not really a football fan, we have tons and tons of people who come who, they are very quick to tell us after the show. They don't know anything about football, and they love this show. Uh, it's a great, it's a great thing to bring your dad to, to bring your brother to, to bring those you know people in your life that um, maybe you struggle to connect with, or maybe you know uh, they don't show their emotions necessarily. If they have a rem- if they have a beating heart in their chest for the Philadelphia Eagles, they will. You might get some, uh, you might get a few drops out of them. <laughs> Nice, nice. All right, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna move on and talk about the Phillies uh, for a little while and some Sixers stuff. So Matt, you're good to stick around. Yeah, I, I, I yes. Awesome. So we I, coming, coming I got us coming, coming off of this week. Are you kidding? Yeah, give me a place to 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 vent. <laughs> All right, well, let's start with the Philly fanatic. 
because this kind of look, I don't think it, by any means is the fanatic going to no longer be the mascot of the Philadelphia Phillies in the future. Um, but it's a better than 0% chance, right? It is. It is. And this is something I wanted to touch on heavily because every article I read about this, and if you're listening to this and you don't know, there's something out there that the Philadelphia Phillies are currently suing um, the firm that created Harrison uh, and Erickson. Thank you. Yep. Um, I keep wanting to do like, uh, what was it? McMahon Erickson. What was the one from? Uh, oh, McCann uh, Erickson. Thank you. Thank you. Krasno, Krasno, and Anwadinjo. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was going Mad Men, not, you know, late night okay. infomercial. Fair enough. Um, but they're, they're suing uh, that firm uh, to prevent them from reclaiming the copyright. And every article I've read about it has kind of portrayed it as a sort of nuisance thing. Like it wasn't really going to happen. So, me being me, I sat down and read copyright law. And <laughs> they they have every right to reclaim the copyright. Like they it's been 35 years since the the Phillies bought the copyright and they can give notice that they're pulling it back and that's it. So, I mean, I fully imagine that this is going to resolve itself with the Phillies writing a huge check, <laughs> but but it's a, a legitimate threat. It's not like, oh, they have to go through these hoops and it's never going to happen. No, it's quite easy for it to happen. So thirty. So forever in copyright law is actually 35 years? Well, the forever bit, like, we need to see the contract that the Phillies signed. Because... Oh, you mean you don't believe everything they say at face value? Yeah, well, <laughs> because the claim that they bought the copyright forever um it doesn't hold much water unless it's in writing and even in writing, like it's going to have to specifically address waiving their right to retrieve, reclaim the copyright. So if, if that was in there, if it was in there explicitly that they are waiving their right uh, to reclaim the copyright, then there wouldn't be a suit. The Phillies would just dismiss it out of hand. Right. But no, it's legit. There is a chance the Philly Fanatic could become a free agent. So let's just play this out. The F Fanatic is put on the market, and we have to go and find a new mascot. Do you have any you just, thoughts as to where bring, we could... You we just bring back Show and Phyllis. That's it. <laughs> That's what you would do, but I mean, how critical is the Fanatic to the Phillies organization? Well, I mean, and I'm saying that not in a way to belittle his, I mean, it's massive. But this is all happening. This is the gritty effect. Y yeah. That's what this is. I mean, this <laughs> is the gritty effect. I mean, the, there's, you, gritty is evidence that you can suck as long as the mascot's good. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have made the case a, a thousand times out of a thousand that who cares? And he's usually in my way. But <laughs> the gritty effect is real. It's cold, man. I, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And I think that somebody who has that, so, you know, somebody involved at some point was like, there's no, we're not in trouble here, right? I mean, what would we do if we had to? And so that, I, I think there's no chance that they will, will ever let him go. I, there's no chance. And I don't know what copyright law says, but my guess would be that if you ever took it to court, they would have a very strong case 
that the only reason the property is worth anything is because of what they've done with it. And so I think it would be hard to argue from a financial standpoint that the whoever the original rights holder is is deriving great benefit from what the Phillies have put into it. So I, I think I would get to that point. I agree with I agree with Dave. I think he's going to write a big check. Did you see that there's another uh, janky thing in this that the copyright uh, claimed the fanatic costume as an artistic sculpture and not a costume? <laughs> <laughs> so the Phillies are claiming there's a little uh, shenanigans going on there with the copyright itself. That sounds right. Yeah, I missed that part. That's that's pretty telling. I mean, not necessarily wrong. I mean, the fanatic is a work of art, but <laughs> well, the fanatic needs to get its uh, needs to get his Twitter game on with a little more oomph to match gritty. I think that's true. Well, no, yeah. I mean, what's the line from The Dark Knight Rises? You know, I was born in the darkness, and that's great. <laughs> <laughs> gritty gritty is bane in this case <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely all right so let's get to actual games that were played on the field um now i, I know that uh gene and chuck were awake and i tweeted evidence that i was awake matt did you watch the 15 inning game on friday night no because i w- i i was so angry after the seventh and the eighth that when it went to extra innings i was i was i was out I was just out. I I couldn't uh, the to have the bases loaded, two innings in a row with one out, and the media. I mean, the meteor order to get nothing. But when it went to extras, I was just so outraged. And I was there on Wednesday, you know, where we got the Hector Neris farewell performance, followed by inexplicably bringing Eflin into the game in the ninth with Arietta going the next day. So. Kapler, you know, look, I'm not one of these like fire Kapler guys, but now I am. I, I <laughs> when he waved the white flag on Friday night against Atlanta, you know, in the fourth inning, I just so I've been angry for a week, and when it went to extras against a bad team, I I was out. So when I discovered the way this idiot managed the the extra inning portion of the game. I, I was even more glad I didn't watch. I'm sorry I missed Vinny's throw, but I, I I can't for the life of me understand what the hell he's doing. And someone has to make a case to me as to what's the virtue of having him. I, I really I, I was willing to give it a year last year and not be a WIP caller, you know, just because he uses flaxseed oil and be angry <laughs> about that. But I I don't I don't understand. I there I just don't understand what they're doing. And I don't want to hear about, you know, the offense has been putrid. And I get that the players, you know, on the field have to execute. But if you're in the fourth inning uh, in a playoff game, as far as I'm concerned, against the Braves, and your manager down four runs waves the white flag, if I'm Bryce Harper, what am I supposed to do anyway? I mean, what are you thinking in right field? So, sorry, this is a tangent. This is just me to get this off my chest. No, this is bold. I (laughs) I did not watch the extra innings game simply because I was done uh, when it went to extra innings. And, and when couldn't. you say wave the white flag, you mean hand Cole Irvin a baseball? Yes. <laughs> Is that okay? I mean, listen, listen. I don't. I'm fine with handing Cole Irvin a baseball, but but my three year old son could have told you that Cole Irvin didn't want to be on that mound. And it, I don't care who you bring in. I don't care if the whole inning blows up the way that it did. You, but you have to hold that inning. You have to treat it like it's Game Seven of the World Series. It's a playoff game. It's the most important. It was the most important series in their season, 
And he played for tomorrow. And I think he plays for tomorrow a lot. And mm. I am a little sick of – I don't need him to turn over tables. I don't need him to be Larry Boa. I don't need him to throw out sabermetrics to whatever the hell somebody, an anti-sabermetric person wants at this point. But I do need him to act like he gives a shit. And I'm sorry. I have a BA in theater. I don't buy his ejection. His ejection would, would get a, a fucking Razzie award. You know, it's, it's it, it, his, his false positivity <laughs> at this point is an insult to Reese Hoskins and JT Romuto and Bryce Harper because they need to be held accountable. And I think they want to be held accountable. And I think that somebody like Charlie Manuel at this point would be better. I, I honestly feel like I don't know why they couldn't just bring him in for two months. They're a playoff team. They should be a playoff team. And that he's managing them like, you know, I don't know. Like, they're, like they are a team in development, and they are not a team in development. They gambled on the pitching staff, and it blew up in their face. But they have an offense that should produce. And I, I just I don't see at this point why he should be the manager of the team. Yeah, but I mean, the I, pitching staff is kind of holding the line right now, right? I, mean, I, like, I agree. Smiley and Vargas, I mean, those additions are working out. I mean, so far, I mean, it's small sample size, but I actually like those moves. Well, at the very least, I mean, I, 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 I don't know that if you tell me that the game four starter of the playoffs is, is Vargas, I don't, I don't think anybody feels very good. But, but no, they, they played the margins, I think, was what they needed to do. I don't think it was worth giving up Bomb or Howard for any of the, the pitchers that were available. I, I think all four of those big names that got traded all come with question marks, you know, from, from Granke to Stroman. Um, and totally. certainly, certainly Bauer throwing a ball out of the stadium. I can't imagine you're giving up, you know, Alex Baum for him. Um, so I think they did the right thing in not going all in on one of those guys. Um, so I agree with you, but <clears throat> the bottom line is they are they far more talented than they played to. And I, I, at some point, the manager has to be accountable for that. Yeah. And the, the playing for tomorrow point is what really killed me in that 15 inning game. Like you have to win. We're not at the point of, you know, managing the load for the season. We need to win some damn games. Well, and if you so, could, if you could properly double switch, you don't you aren't in that position. And and yes. maybe you're not in that position if you don't bat your your pitcher out of the eight hole. For I'm not I'm not totally sure what that gained you. Uh, in a game against the White Sox, you know, did, did, did you really need that small percentage of, of an edge uh, against the Chicago White Sox? You know, but that's the thing is I don't feel like that Gabe Kapler really understands that a lot of the problems he gets himself into are his own making. Yes. Right. When you look at this stuff in a vacuum, you know, how, how do we get to Roman Quinn pitching in the 15th inning? Um, and, you know, you say, well, you know, why are you pinch running for Eflin? Well, I mean, we he, I guess he's exonerated because we hear that, you know, Eflin said he couldn't go or at least alluded yes, to the fact that he couldn't bullshit. go. But it's it's absolute bullshit. Then why did you come into the game? <laughs> I mean, like it's like that. That is the first question you ask. You're like, well, he didn't feel well. Then why did you let him pitch at all? I, I mean, if he pitched, he could run <laughs> like what? Are, I don't get it. I, yeah. I don't. I don't yeah, I mean, if, I, I, I if mean I'm trying, with you. But... And if you're trying to save Velasquez's arm, you don't want him to actually pitch. And then he makes a play falling on his pitching arm, um, <laughs> which this was an interesting thing. Uh, apparently, I guess it's um... – Well, Velasquez pitched a bullpen session that day. Like, okay. He, yeah. So he couldn't pitch. But here, here's the thing. 
apparently there is a, a I guess a, a source that that rates um, fielding defensive plays like in the outfield from one to five. Probably all defensive plays from one to five, and uh, a five star play, you know, is the top of the the heap. You know, there are very few that that ever happen. Apparently, the, the Phillies only had three five star outfield plays all of last year, which if you watch them, three seems generous. Um, but they hadn't had any outfield uh, five-star outfield plays yet this year until the 15th inning game. That play oh made by Vinny Velasquez. Wait, no way. That yeah. outfield assist from Harper w- wouldn't have qualified? Well, I, get, I, I, I think I it was the catch. I think it was actually the yeah, catch the ca- right. that okay. actually was the five-star well, play. I would okay. also get that outfield assist not being five because that you know that really was a base running mistake and that it's a great throw without question but it is a little up the line it wasn't it was exactly <laughs> an on talk I'm just saying I mean if I, I, don't I actually, know how I actually thought the, the second throw was better in the in the in yes. the, the next inning uh, but yeah no the the actual that that catch he made. Uh, and honestly, I don't know why he wasn't in left field for defensive purposes most of last year when they would, would pull uh, Reese Hoskins. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a sorry state because, you know, I, he pitched on Wednesday night and he uh, he has one of the highest batting averages on the team as well. So it's not it's a sorry state if we could start him in left and let him just bat. I think that that's uh, I don't know. You got you got these guys like Vince Velasquez, Roman Quinn. They're like dying out there on the field for the team. But I feel like all of our stars have been coming up so small in these key spots. It's just insanely frustrating. I mean, there's no other way to put no, it. No, yeah, they're, they're consistent in their inconsistency. That and I, I just feel like guys are good. They come here and they underperform. Then they leave here and, and they're better. I don't know. Is is this a coaching staff issue? Again, we're well, asking the same I, at the question. Very least, at the very least, it's a development issue. And I think that as time goes on, maybe it doesn't help to have these reunions and these retirements. But Ed Wade and Mike Arbuckle built the team, and they developed those guys. And they, they basically drafted and developed three guys who ended up being the best at their position in Howard, Utley, and Rollins. And you could argue that Hamels is no less than the third best left-hander they ever had. Who is the – who? Who? And we're talking nearly two decades of – time since certainly since my garbuckle left and what who, <laughs> who? <laughs> no hoskins is the best you have and Aaron noah who really came in as a as a ready product they didn't have to develop him i mean he was in their system of development for less than a year so i i i, I if i if i was stupid money cigar man i would i would I would get rid of everybody. I mean, I really would. I mean, I, I would let this season play out, but I see no reason. I mean, again, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm, I'm a guest on your podcast. I am not prone to hyperbole and WIPisms, but I really do feel like I. You have to look at a track record of nearly, at least there's ten years of evidence, and you really can go back to, you know, since Arbuckle left and Wade got fired, who have they drafted and developed? I would fire everybody and I would pay, I would spend whatever I could to get anybody from the Rays organization or the A's organization or the Astros organization where ironically Ed Wade went and helped build another fucking winner. I, I just um, I there's there's no one that they have developed that's worth much. Is, is JP is JP Crawford like the the patron saint of what you're saying right now? 
I, I don't know. I mean, because it's, again, you, you know, small sample size of what he actually can be. I, my bigger, I go back to, you know, you know, Ruben Amaro, you know, had a much maligned tenure, obviously, but he was doing everything he could to keep them in contention. And I don't know what's the bigger indictment on the Amaro era, that he traded away all their young players or that not a single one since Carlos Carrasco ever came back to bite them. I mean, what does that tell you? I mean, they literally traded away. You can't trade Kyle Drayback. You just can't <laughs> trade Kyle Drayback. He's he's going to be working at the Acme. I mean, <laughs> where is Kyle Drayback? I mean, who is the guy? I mean, can, even Jonathan Singleton, who for a minute looked like he was going to mm. be great, is out of baseball. I mean, I, I just don't. There's no evidence in the last 15 years, to be generous, that the Phillies are capable of developing more than a position player every 10 years. That's not good. When you look at Rama Lacuna and, and Albies yeah. and Swanson and Freddie Freeman, that is what development looks like. That is what a team that knows how to draft and develop. Now, granted, one of those guys got kicked out of baseball for life, but, but still, <laughs> you know, I, I, that's what I look at, you know, right now is, is yes, they should be better on the field. Yes, these guys should be playing harder. But I guess me, Harper has done everything you could ask of him in, in, in the way he has conducted himself and the way he has been the face of the franchise. And yes, his numbers are down. But I really have to believe that he is, he's bearing the burden right now of trying to solve everything. And I think if Romuto and Hoskins would be a little bit more consistent – and if McCutcheon didn't get hurt, we'd probably be having a different conversation. That's what I believe. I probably think there's three to four wins and two and a half games behind the Braves if a couple of those things break in their favor. They have been snake bit, no doubt, but I still have a huge problem with the fact that there's not a single guy they've developed outside of Hoskins that anybody would start on a World Series contender. That's my well, I, I saw a little <laughs> bit of your thoughts about uh, Franco's demotion to to Lehigh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. How I feel. I'm pretty. I'm. I'm pretty. I don't know. I'm kind of torn about this because I feel like he's a, he's dangerous in the lineup. At, at the very least, he's a threat. When I look at guys like um, uh, Sean Rodriguez, I, I feel like I don't think I've ever seen him get a hit. So I mean, well, I think. I, I think it comes down with, to Franco to something really large, which has been looming for some time, which is they have given him every opportunity to make the case. They have committed to him. They have never given up on him. And, and I think the argument at this point is that Scott Kingery is a minus, minus defender in the outfield. He has to be in the infield. I think he's better at second base. But put him at third base and commit to that. And now that they have Dickerson – they can have a platoon in the outfield with some of the guys they have. And and Rodriguez hasn't gotten a hit, but he's a utility guy. And there's no other place to play Franco aside from third base. So I just think that it was time. I just think at a certain point, you had to say enough is enough. And I, and I think Cesar still does enough to make a case. But I think those two guys um, have been given all the opportunities to, to assert themselves and make themselves – key to this team. I mean, the first six weeks, you know, there were articles being written about how Michael Franco was the best eight-hole hitter in baseball. Well, that went away. And and how much of that has to do with McCutcheon going away, I, I can't say, but I just think that the Michael Franco 
experiment has has proven to be a failure and that his highs are not nearly as maddening as his lows. Oh my God. We have so many failed experiments. It's ridiculous. And even as a fielder, you know, I mean, he, he can be brilliant in one moment and then in the extra inning game, he tries to make the out of third base instead of throwing across the diamond at first. It's probably a close play, but of course it didn't work out. It just feels like every time he is called upon to make a critical play, he doesn't make it. And, and I don't know what the metrics are in his fielding, um, but I just know that that in key spots, I don't don't exactly trust that side of the diamond. And I so I don't know. With all respect to Mr. Rob, I don't really know what the case is to be made to why. Like I, if you watch this team on a consistent basis, we all know why he got demoted. I I was really surprised to see the amount of Phillies fans uh, on social media that I know that. Were shocked. I was like, you can be upset. You can't be shocked. This is, you know, and they're really just trying to, you know, they're really just trying to get over to, to get bomb up here. I mean, that's really all it is. I mean, I saw somebody say they should be all in on Anthony Rendon. It's like, okay. Uh, I don't know if you've watched this team this year, they need to be all in on pitching. They're so <laughs> yeah. position player that they should be let the nationals resign Anthony Rendon. That's fine. They have Alex Baum coming, and, and again, I'm going to talk out both sides of my mouth because I'm damning the development, but I'm praying and hoping that Alex Baum is, is one of the guys that is, is worthwhile. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, you can damn their development and still hope that somebody comes through. I mean, I can't believe we had this long a conversation um, about development and the phrase Dom Brown did not come up. Well, that's all you said. J.P. Crawford, I thought, no, I think it's Don Brown is really the Patriots. Well, I only the, the reason I said J.P. Crawford is is because he he I don't know like he he he's succeeding now away from here. Like he was a top prospect. The Phillies did what they did with them. Then they kind of tried to make it work in the majors and it failed. And now we thought we were shipping off, you know, uh, uh, you know, Joe Nobody over to the Mariners, and now he's flourishing so i mean i think that speaks volumes to where the coaching and development staff is yeah yeah you're right but yeah but Tom, but you're right chuck tom brown is he's the you know he was the he's the prince who was promised yeah yeah so let's go to another uh lightning rod figure in philly's history bobby abreu is now <laughs> on your on your wall of fame um the illustrious wall of fame uh I don't know. So I've been listening to talk radio and now it's the, the trendy thing now is to crap on anybody who has ever crapped on Bobby Abreu. So is that where <laughs> we're at? Uh, Bobby Abreu's fine. He, he typified an era of Phillies baseball that was not good to say the least, you know, he was the, the best player on many a bad team. Thanks for your service. See ya. I mean, the fact I have to say the fact that they coordinated Bobby Abreu Day with the 09, you know, National League winners like that was a bit odd. It's like, let's celebrate the 09 team. And thankfully, this guy wasn't a part of it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that, that's the interesting thing, Chuck. I always one my maybe my favorite thing about Bobby Abreu ever was I, I point to the franchise turning around in the early part of the century to him being traded away like that moment 
to me was 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 that was the high water mark. It was or or low water mark, whatever whatever <laughs> whatever the analogy <laughs> is. That was the point where you go. Bobby Abreu gets trade. We play the wild card uh, game in 07, uh, team to beat 08 world champions. Uh, Pedro Martinez is a Philly. That's that's the mountain. <laughs> Wait, is Pedro well, Martinez a Philly the peak of the mountain, Gene? I, I mean, do you forget seeing him strike out six guys in a row in Boston on a hot no, summer I day? Saw it. I saw it with you. And the guy's a Hall of Famer. He's the best. Yeah, he's great. I, I mean, I, I, I think of Abreu often in the same way I think of Iguodala. You know, they, they really were as great as you know, anybody really paying attention could say they were saddled with the unfortunate position of, of not um, being able to be the guy. But Bobby Abreu will go down as one of the best hitters in the history of the Phillies. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, he, he really was. And if you watched him play, um, and I got to see him play a lot in person, you know, when I was working as a, a non-equity actor with my best friend from, you know, grade school, uh, working as head of stadium operations of the Phillies. I went to a lot of free Phillies games from, <laughs> from 99 to 2004, and uh, he was great. He drove you crazy because he didn't run into walls. He drove you crazy because he was the classic, you know, getting hits when it didn't matter. But he was great. And the fact that the Phillies, you know, people forget. You know, people say it started in, in 07, but, you know, the Phillies made a run in 2001. And they actually made a run in 2003. I mean, they they came up, they went to the last week of the season in 01 and in 03 with a chance to win the wild card. Um, and 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 I agree with Gene completely that it definitely was trading him away that ushered in the Rollins-Utley-Howard era. And that, you can't deny that. Um, you know, the but, the but the fact of the matter is that if you're talking about the Wall of Fame being something that celebrates and chronicles the high points of the organization, he's in the conversation. I, I, I'm more inclined to take people's side if they don't want Mike, Mike Lieberthal on the wall of fame, but Bobby Abreu belongs on the, the wall of fame. He, he just unquestionably, to me, was one of the best sitters I ever saw wear a Phillies uniform. The I just think the wall of fame is like just an interesting thing now. Like I, I don't even know how to describe it because it's – is it the best well, players in Phillies? Is the most – what I just said. I mean I think you have to sort of look at it like – it is meant to celebrate the best of the Phillies, but it's also it's a chronicle of the history of the place. I mean, you know, what's the, what, are the, what do they call that bullshit at Yankee Stadium? What do they call that shit? The mo- Hall of Monuments? Monument, monument, right, whatever, whatever nonsense they call it. <laughs> Pretentious bullshit. Monument Park or whatever. You know, I mean, if you go through that, Michigas, I'm sure there's people in that thing. That Yankee fans will go, well, he was no Derek Jeter. You know, I, not that we have a lot of those guys. I think that's always the indictment is like, how bad are we that we have to put Mike Lieberthal? And it's like, well, well, we are who we are. Are we supposed to act like we didn't have those guys? Are we supposed to act like, you know, again, like this cited, people forget, you know, the 2001 Phillies were competitive. It's a big reason why Jim Tomey came here. They were competitive in 2003. I mean, I was at a game against the Marlins the last week of the season that was played early because of a hurricane and a ball blew around the, the first base foul line and dropped. Derek Lee missed it and we scored and the Phillies won the game. And I thought for sure they were going to the playoffs. So it's not like Mike Lieberthal and Bobby Abreu were here. They weren't here with Pat Combs 
1992. You know what I mean? They weren't here in the dregs of 99 with Frank Kona. I mean, they were, they weren't, well, they were, <laughs> but they, they weren't exactly part of shit baseball in Philadelphia. I guess that would be my argument. I think the Wall of Fame is intended to celebrate the high points of the team's history. And I think those, I think those two guys are worthy of that celebration, but that's just my two cents. Wasn't 2001, did, isn't that the year Lieberthal got hurt? He did. He got and hurt. They probably would have made the playoffs if he didn't get injured. I, I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah. But anyway, that I, I just think that I, that's why I bring up the Goodall. I just think like, you oh, know, so what's going to happen? Is is Aaron Rowan going to be put on the Wall of Fame because of the catch? And then we can all tell our children, oh, Dad, who's Aaron Rowan? Oh, well, he made this one great catch. I think in his case, no. Okay. I think I don't. I, I mean, I, I I'm going to have you can... back on the show when he's in, indicted in, in <laughs> seven years. We're out of people. The thing that everyone be from '08 has already been inducted into the Wall of Fame. I mean that's the thing, Dave. You don't you don't realize how many years we got we got to go through. I mean, most of those guys are going to be on the wall. I mean, most oh, yeah. of those guys. Are and we'll have a good we'll have a good pool of people M- to draw of, from. Will most... Matt Stairs be on the wall? I don't think so. Commentating. Think so. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, right. the more, maybe the more interesting t- the case would be Scott Rowland. I I like to see if uh, if maybe uh, down. The... I'll protest. I'll go out with a sign, a sandwich board. I walk around the ballpark. Two for one, I, Scott Rowland and JD Drew on the heaven. same day. Baseball oh, heaven, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, he's never really. That's really baseball heaven. I, I would almost say yes if it wasn't for baseball heaven. All right, all right. So uh, Phillies lose two out of three to the lowly White Sox. Um, still a game out of the second wild card, so you get to keep on watching. For a few more weeks, what do you think, I Matt? Think, you think you think that they'll, they'll stumble in? Yeah, I think they're going to stay in it. I I just think that they have they haven't burned it down yet, and they I think there's still a Harper hot streak in there. And I agree with you that the additions of Smiley and Vargas might be just enough to to stem the tide. Um, I think they stay in it. I just think they do. I don't think I think it's I think it's an underwhelming league. I think you, I think you have to treat it like this is the the Dodgers, the Warriors, as far as I'm concerned. And I just think that's how you have to play it. That there's the Warriors, there's everybody else. And I just think right now we're with everybody else. And the only thing I will say is that if it comes down not to the Nationals, but to the fucking Mets. <laughs> If the Mets find a way to be in this thing, um, that's going to be tough. <laughs> that's going to—I I would rather anything else happen than the the hysteria of the last week of September and the New York Metropolitans ahead of us in the wild card. That will be enough to make me never want to watch baseball again. Oh God! <laughs> but I think right. they're going to stay. I think they're going to stay in it. I, I still think at some point they're going to have a. They. I. It seems impossible that they're not going to have at least two weeks of at least two of those guys in the lineup feeling August. I, I just, I have to believe that's going to happen. I'll, I'm ready to be wrong, but I, I just, I have to believe that's going to happen. All right, right on. Let's touch on some Sixers stuff this week uh, real quick before we wrap up here. Um, Sixers uh, unveiled the 70s uniforms. 
What do you guys? We we love talking about uniforms on the show. What do you guys think about the '70s uniforms? We are very fashion forward around here. Uh, I was uh, the leak started to come out uh, early in the week, and then it, they finally made the big reveal. I guess there was kind of like that that '76, you know, stay tuned August first or August second, whatever day they finally revealed it. But uh, I really like the look. I know that there are some people that are kind of like head scratching over the the font but uh they're very very true to the the source material um which was that that was the look that they they wore in the 70s i'll be interested to see if they do the high shorts too like do the whole ensemble um <laughs> when they when they actually un- uh, wear them uh much like the um saturday night specials that the phillies used i i don't want to see a lot of these uniforms like th- much like um very expensive salt like this this will be <laughs> <laughs> this uniform will be better if it's used sparingly like you know if i see it once in the season uh, you know that would probably be enough for me uh and then maybe you know people can buy it and wear it in the stands i don't want to see it on the court a lot but i i like uh i like the opportunity for photo shoots anytime you can put uh ben simmons barely into a 70s car uh, and joel Embiid no way into that car uh that that's exciting so you know they uh those were separate photo shoots and then they photoshopped them together well because they were both too tall to be even in the same room as the car at the same I time i don't know i don't know no, I they, continue to, they continue to want us to have to worry about whether or not they get along that's fine. yeah no. <laughs> I, I i dug the look i'm one of those people that thought you know the font could be updated or the 70 could have been brought closer to the sixers bit um but i enjoy them and the photo shoot with the car i think it was a camaro and that just brings me back to memories of my sister in the 80s because like that was very much her cup of tea like that that look was you know my sister's uh bedroom you know from like 82 to 89 so nostalgia is playing a, a big part in my enjoyment of them my enjoyment of it solely resides in the fact that it once again instructs the Celtics how fucking dumb cuss cries is. And that is how you do it. That is how it's supposed to be done. So I don't care how many times they wear the they're gonna I think unfortunately they're gonna wear that uniform a lot. If if the if the city edition uniforms are any evidence, they ended up wearing those the the straight star jerseys a lot last season. But I just appreciate that you could say, see, you see, Celtics <laughs> That's how you do it, you illiterate idiot. <laughs> well, you, you're ending up with fucking cuss cries on your fucking <laughs> playoff shirts. That's how you do it. So that's why I, I like it. Uh, so, you know, you get the, the NBA lets you do this once every five years, pull out a, a retro jersey, because I think if they didn't put that regulation on teams would just be going crazy uh, with all sorts of. Th- but the last time we did it was the blue jerseys with the Phila that is now like a regular Jersey. So beware Gene, that may be, uh, that may be coming your way. Do you think they'll do the floor? Do you think they'll do like, they'll paint the floor differently that night? Like a, like a total seventies floor look. Yeah. Well, they would have to like lift some boards and have them like be out of whack and stuff too. Mm-hmm. Probably like yeah, really <laughs> retro spectrum style. Uh, I love that blue uniform, by the way, I think I'm going to get my Al Horford in, uh, in that blue fill Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Sixers Bucks Christmas, and we got a home game on Christmas now. Uh, would you go? Would you b- abandon the family on Christmas and go to the game? 
No is the short answer. Wrong answer, Gene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would actually. <laughs> Be a nice I... little present under the tree there. Guess what? We're wait. going to the game today. Wait, wait, wait. Now you're taking seen. the family? I thought this scenario was ditching the family. Yeah, well, that too. I mean, you know, whatever. Okay. Either way. Because it's not like you're going to bring your grandma. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you take your son or whatever. Somebody gives you a ticket. Like, let's go to the game. You're not bringing your in-laws or whatever, right? Well, I'm not going to be paying attention to them anyway because I'm going to be watching the game. So it, it, I might as well be there. All right, fair enough. And it's not going to be at 7 a.m. And anybody that's got kids, like, all the important stuff's done by, like, 8.30. So, you know, have a coffee, grab your jersey, and go tailgate. You know what, Gene? You're right. All the important stuff is done. So let's go to Chuck's penalty box. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Did not see that uh, transition coming. That, right, you are. You are. I thought, I thought you were going to go on some diatribe, but you have mass later in the day, and... You're going to, like, Catholic guilt Gene. So, Gene, who is in your penalty box? I'm so glad I get to go first. Uh, honestly, uh, I, I want to put so many people in the penalty box off of the same incident. Uh, I'm going to just pick Amir Garrett uh, as the guy representing this whole disaster that was uh, one guy versus the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, <laughs> so if you haven't seen the clip, uh, it's reminiscent of, like, the time that uh, – uh, Meta World Peace decided he was going to fight an entire stadium in, in Indiana. Um, literally, Amir Garrett just charges the Pittsburgh bench. And the reason I would like to penalize, and not that Major League Baseball's eight games is 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 is, is chump change, but the reason I want to penalize him is, come on, man, like, you've watched enough baseball fights. Don't abandon the mound, or at least bring your catcher with you. Like, and you got to wait for that guy to get up and, like, hobble over, you know, because they got all catchers and bad knees. Uh, so yeah. you, you can't go in alone. You This is not, you know, you can't go maverick. Uh, in a baseball fight, like you've got to hold the mound, let them come to you. Uh, you know that's what a real bench clearing brawl is is all about. You going and jumping into the bullpen, you're there's just it, it's a suicide mission, honestly. All right, Amir Johnson, you're getting a five minute fighting major. Amir Garrett. Amir Garrett. Oh my gosh, I was like, how did Amir Johnson get involved in this? <laughs> Please don't bring him back into my life. Please don't bring him back into my life. <laughs> Once I left my mouth, I'm like, that's all right. Uh, Amir Gary, you're getting a five-minute fighting major uh, for not following the basic rules of a baseball brawl. All right, Fife. Um, we're going to let our guest put someone in the penalty box. Matt Pfeiffer, who is in your penalty box? I think that I've already made my case that the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies can go in that box and rot in hell as far as I'm concerned. I don't want to see him. I don't want to hear him. I just want him out of my life. All right. So, um, Matt, you're probably not aware of this, but in the very first penalty box, Gabe Kapler was put into it, and we sort of wondered aloud that we had to put a moratorium on it because he probably would have been in every week. So, uh, Gabe, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of Potadelphia. You're coming up on the one-year anniversary of your first penalty. Uh, you're going to get a two-minute minor for Why the hell are you still here? 
Uh, Dave, who is in your penalty box? All right, I'm putting arena football into the penalty box. Uh, in case you guys didn't know it, uh, the Philadelphia Soul uh, are headed to the Arena Bowl next week. Um, and I don't really watch arena football, so I was checking out the playoff game today. But it turns out it's part of a home and home. When did football start doing home and homes? And last week, Philadelphia won the road game by like 35 points. So this game was basically meaningless. Uh, I was actually interested in even going to this game until I found out that that was the case. And I was like, oh, why am I going to go see basically a non-competitive game? So uh, arena football, get your playoff structure straight. All right, Arena Football, you still exist, and no one knows why. You're getting a 65-minute penalty, but in Arena Football that's normal, the scores go a lot higher. Did I take yours, Chuck? You came dangerously close. Okay, all right, Chuck, who is in your penalty box? The Philadelphia Soul are in my penalty box. <laughs> I think Dave saw me scurry trying to find a new one. Um, the Philadelphia Soul um, won today, and the I think they were playing the Washington whomevers. Val, that's who they were playing. The Washington Valor, very, very distinct and distinguished. But Yes, and they have been eliminated and apparently they're the defending champs because that's what the Philadelphia Soul decided to tweet out to them. And what they said is, looks like another defending champion from Washington will be getting bounced in the first round this year. Parentheses at Capitals. Hate to see it. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with this tweet. Hashtag we got Harper. <laughs> well, that that's good but why are we trolling the capitals when the flyers didn't even make the playoffs last year you know haven't won a championship since the mid 70s you know why are we going after them what's this cross sport hate here like there's plenty of things to pick on washington also if you're gonna subtweet somebody don't at them like if you want to be all snarky and go like oh another washington team did we're talking about that we're talking about the capitals like, so the Philadelphia soul for having no chill, you're getting a double minor two minutes for recognizing for not recognizing the flyers, poor play and two minutes for being tone deaf. All right. That's it for the show for today. Uh, Matt Pfeiffer, thank you so much uh, for being on the show with us. Any, uh, any last minute plugs or. No, come see Tommy and me by Ray Dinger, presented by Theater Exile. Uh, it would be great to have everybody come out. It's a great time, and this is a blast. Thank you for letting me. Uh, it's like going to therapy. And nice. Off my chest. <laughs> nice. Well, anytime you want to come back, just let us know. We'll be happy to have you. Uh, All right. And, you know, we'll be back next Monday. Hey, I am going out to Arizona this week to see the Phillies uh, play the Diamondbacks in Phoenix. So that that should be fun, right? Stay cool. We need to win those games. We need oh to win those God. games. Uh, as always, be sure to check us out on, on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search at Potadelphia. And uh, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Have a great day at work, everybody. We're out of here. Bye.